This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're marking the reopening of a historic building, now fully under the care of English Heritage. It's taken eight months to prepare Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire for visitors. This has involved conservation work both on the hall and its collections, a reimagining of interior spaces and the installation of new interpretation to help tell its story. To explain more about the history of the site and the project to bring it under new stewardship are Kevin Booth, English Heritage's Senior Curator for the North Region, and Nick Holder, Senior Properties Historian. Hello there, thanks very much indeed. Hello. For people who don't know this historic building, Kevin, could you describe where it is and what it looks like? Well, perhaps I'll describe where I am. I'm actually sat in Gainsborough Old Hall. I've got timber framing all around me, late 15th century timber framing, in one of the small chambers in the East Range. The Old Hall, it sits on the edge, on the northern edge of what was the sort of historic core of Gainsborough, which is a small town in Lincolnshire on the bank of the River Trent, this sort of great waterway that travels so far inland and acts as a transport route throughout the last really thousand years. On the Lincolnshire side, you have Gainsborough, the town, and on the Nottinghamshire side is just open fields. And the Trent, the river, is integral, really, to both the manor house, the hall, and the town. Uh, What's it look like? Nick, what would you say Gainsborough Old Hall looks like? Well, on the outside, it looks like a beautiful red brick, maybe 16th or 17th century mansion from some of the angles, if you're looking from one side. When you look from other views, maybe from the internal courtyard, it looks one or 200 years older because you see it as this amazing black and white timber frame building. So it has kind of different facades, different sides, some medieval, some looking a bit more Tudor and Jacobean. It's quite a mix of different materials, different ages, different periods. So we've established where it is, what it looks like, and uh, the very room that you're sitting in, uh, which is where exactly? It's in the East Range. It's on the on the first floor, probably one of the sort of later conversions by the Hickman family who we'll hear about. It's a little side, a little side closet to one of their bedrooms. Okay, interesting. We'll work (laughs) out whereabouts this fits into the history as well. So we're going to do a little bit of a summary of the history of Gainsborough Old Hall now. I understand there's about five chapters roughly that you can sort of break the history down into. So who wants to start with chapter one? Well, we're going back in time to the 15th century, the 1400s. There probably was a 14th or a 15th century smallish hall here, maybe with a moat around it. Our story, in terms of the surviving building, begins probably in the 1460s. We have a a soldier knight, Thomas Burr, later Sir Thomas Burr, He was probably born in the old hall, but in about 1455, his mother dies and he inherits the estates. And he's an ambitious soldier knight. He's a supporter of the Yorkist side in the English Wars of the Roses. So we're talking in, just to remind everyone, in the 1450s, the aristocracy sort of splits into these two opposing sides symbolised by the colour of their roses. Yes, right. I remember from my school so, history. <laughs> well, Thomas Burr is on both sides. He starts off as a Lancastrian, 
But in about 1460, perhaps he sees which way the uh, wind is blowing, and he joins the other side. He starts to support Edward, later Duke of York, who later becomes King Edward IV. And he picks the winning side, which is always good. And in 1461, you have this big battle of the Wars of the Roses, the Battle of Towton, one of the bloodiest battles fought on English soil. Thomas Burr is almost certainly there. And the army of Edward IV, the Yorkist army, featuring Thomas Burr, defeats the army of Henry VI. Therefore, we have a new king, Edward IV. So Thomas Burr has picked the right side. He's promoted soon afterwards in 1461. In 1463, he becomes a knight. He's knighted. And he quickly becomes this sort of rising, powerful magnate, this local powerful force in Gainsborough and Lincolnshire. And he kind of rises up through the ranks. Now, it must be about this time that he starts work on his hall. It's not a brand new hall, but he starts improving the older medieval hall that was here. And through the 1460s and 1470s, his kind of building ambitions increase in line with his political power. There's a slight incident in 1470 when some of the uh, Lancastrian local opponents actually damage and destroy part of the old hall. So he has to then do yet more rebuilding in the 1470s. And we still debate today what the precise building dates are of which wing. But basically, I think we'd say three wings, we should actually call them rangers, sorry, three rangers built in the 1460s and 1470s. So to recap then, really, we have this soldier, Thomas Burr. He switches sides to the Yorkists. He gets promoted And through warfare and through winning, he gets promoted and becomes firmly entrenched in the state, effectively, by becoming a knight and a landowner. Absolutely. And not only is he a military man, but he survives politically. Henry VI comes back to power for a year or two, and Thomas Burr doesn't lose his land or his position. Then Edward IV returns again, then it's Richard III, then it's Henry VII. There's a whole sort of succession of kings, and good old Sir Thomas Burr manages to last out through all the changing political situation and consolidate his power, and at the same time add new bits to his rather impressive medieval hall. Yes, I understand that he added some castle-like elephants and a great kitchen, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So let's say by the 1470s, He's built three rangers, if you can imagine maybe a sort of square N shape of a west wing or a west range, a north range and an east range, built with different materials, different styles. By the 1480s, Sir Thomas is called to serve in Parliament, the House of Lords. So he kind of nearly, but not quite, becomes a lord. And it looks like his kind of architectural ambitions increase even further. He's got this nice three-sided medieval hall house. But if he is going to go to the House of Lords, he could have a castle. He doesn't start again and build an entire castle. But what he seems to do, probably in the 1480s or 1490s, is he builds a brick castle-like tower in the northeastern corner, the kind of junction between the north range and the eastern range. Mm. And probably at about this time, he rebuilds the kitchen. He obviously had kitchens because he's got a large sort of family and household and staff. But about this time, he rebuilds the kitchens 
also in brick. So you have this kind of square N shape, if you like, with west, north, and east ranges. In the top right, he adds this brick tower. And in the top left corner, he adds a huge new brick kitchen. So by, let's say, 1490, this is a pretty impressive medieval building. And he's living there. It's almost Tudor. It's almost Tudor by now, because let's it's yeah. the reign of Henry VII. He is living there. He is yeah. lord of the manor. It's a manor house. And he's there as a sort of almost a lord in his almost a castle. So probably the most powerful man in the town at the time. He's very definitely the most powerful man in the town. And he's one of the powerful men of Lincolnshire and this northern bit of East Anglia. So that's sort of chapter one down. Let's move on to chapter two, which starts with a family called the Hickmans. Do you know about that, Kevin? William Hickman, he's an interesting chap. Nick's told us about Thomas Burr. Thomas Burr dies in 1496, and in many ways that is the sort of high point, I think it's probably fair to say, of the Burr family and the Burr occupancy at Gainsborough. With 100 years, almost exactly 100 years after Thomas the First Lord Burr dies, his family sort of just peters out, really, in debt and in illness, and they have to sell up, and they sell up to this chap called William Hickman. He's a merchant based in London, coming from a sort of mercantile background. His, his father and his uncle were both ship owners who transited goods across to Europe and much further beyond. Hickman moves here with his first wife, Agnes, who dies shortly after, and he remarries a, a lady called Elizabeth. He brings also Rose Hickman, his mother. Rose Hickman is a, a sort of indomitable matriarch of the family who documents her experience as a Protestant through the 16th century and through the sort of tribulations and difficulties, religious difficulties of the 16th century. She goes into exile during Queen Mary's reign, comes back again. And they, the family is quite sort of radical in its Protestant religious beliefs, but it's also quite determined in its business and its commercial interests as well. So you get with William Hickman, you get the sort of verging on puritanical outlook on life mm. mixed with a determined attitude for newly acquired manorial rights and his legitimacy within the town of Gainsborough to extract Jews, fees, respect amongst this community. I think he's a very interesting and very willful and deliberate character, William Hickman, and mm. he makes a transformation of elements of the old hall. He already sounds very different in terms of personality and stateliness, if that's a word, because he's a merchant. He's sort of maybe new money, shall we say? He is somewhat looked down upon by some in the town who, who feel exactly that and feel this this influence of London and local traders who feel put out because Hickman is encouraging London traders to come up and use Gainsborough. Local people who are put out because Hickman is encouraging the taking of the common land and people building enclosing elements of the common land. Put out because he, he apparently demolishes part of the parish church. I have no idea why that's not recorded but he does this and then refuses to rebuild it. The man comes across as not being terribly popular but he clearly does very well for himself. And that is shown in the old hall, in his investment in new interiors, new panelling inside, new painted wall surfaces. We have inventories of his furniture, which they're not the grandest of the grand, but they are quite rich and quite varied. There's quite some quality 
in the furniture that he has. And he commissions, or there are commissioned, a whole series of portraits of himself and his mother and his brother and wife that are clearly hung proudly within their public spaces as they welcome business guests and other guests from the town. Did he and the Hickmans generally change the property physically? You talked about the interiors there, but did the outside of it change much? I think, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think not greatly. I mean, the the footprint, and that's what's one of the wonderful things about Gainsborough, is the footprint and the ranges that we have that Nick described are largely what Thomas Burr built. Right. They've been fiddled around with, and we've lost sort of the wider estate buildings and the precinct that would have been around this building. But it sits as Thomas Burr's ambition and his vision internally fettled and made more a property that's fit, a fit family home, really, for the 17th century Hickmans, as opposed to how it was originally constructed for the Burrs in the late 15th century. Moving on to chapter three, then, the time moves forward as well. We're into the 18th and 19th centuries now. When the family, the Hickmans, that is, no longer lives in the house, the many spaces get used in different ways. Can you tell us a bit more how the house is developing at this point with no one living in it? I suppose 1730 is this sort of pivotal point in the history of the hall. That's about then that the Hickmans move out. So after 250, 260 years of being a family residence, a family home, a place where that sort of dominated and controlled the town, The family move out. They still own the building, but the town moves in. The hall becomes the old hall, and it becomes a series of utility spaces that can be used in a whole range of different ways. So in in one part, it might be a factory. It might be a cooperage. It might have plasters in it. In another part, it might be rented out to a future earl. Hmm. In one section, there may be the relatively poor living in the equivalent of a sort of tenement block, Whereas in the Great Hall, the Methodist preacher, John Wesley, is issuing one of his sermons in the late 1750s. This is the kind of variation that Gainsborough, the old hall, has. And it has it for 250 years, really up until the late 20th century. And that's we'll explore that through these next chunks. So, yes, in the 18th century, it is remarkable. It's in terms of an English heritage property, you know, it has this afterlife from its original key purpose and it just continues going and it continues giving and so phase three is the 18th and 19th centuries of these multiple uses including it must be said a theater a theater created in 1790 a, a sort of classic georgian theater with side boxes and a pit and candle lit and a gallery at one end and the whole sort of raucous vibrant atmosphere that you get with that over almost 60 years of occupation. That's amazing. It's it's amazing how when a building falls into decline from the use of a rich family and it becomes ignored and vacated, then the community just takes it on. And that's exactly what happened here. And you have this melting pot of all these different people. Fascinating. I, I, I suppose another way to think about it is the key moment is when, if you have a fine building owned by a fine family, and then that family moves out, the owners of it, who are still the Hickmans or their descendants at this time, they still want to make money. So this kind of large, three-winged, free-range building becomes a a source of income. So it's once the owners are no longer resident, then you start, as the landlord and as the various subtenants, you start thinking of ways to make money by letting out and subletting the various spaces. 
So the Hickmans are basically making money even though they're not living there. They're renting it out as landlords, effectively. Correct, well, that's, yes. So that's that's, an import, it's an important space, and you can divide it up into all these different uses that Kevin has talked about. It's mm-hmm. no longer just one use. It's the family hall. It's, well, it, it's no longer going to be that. It's three different ranges, three different wings. It becomes like sort of blocks of flats and tenements and factories, as Kevin has explained. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting, is it? Because that probably happens an awful lot of our English heritage properties. Well, we know it happens, but we don't particularly have the records in detail of how those spaces have been sort of let for different use by their owner. As part of Chapter 3, which we're in at the moment, the the owner comes very much back into play in the mid-19th century. And again, I think sees an opportunity both to make a little money out of the old hall but also to cement his position within Gainsborough society. So Hickman converts elements of the hall into a corn exchange where he can himself extract a percentage of the trade that goes on. He creates an assembly rooms for the town and he creates spaces which, amongst other things, are leased by the Gainsborough Literary Institute. So it's interesting that after a sort of over a century of relative almost chaotic endeavours within the old hall, the family step back in, create a little bit of, of procedure. I suppose to sort of, I'm guessing here, slightly gentrify and uh, raise the, the standard of the property again? To gentrify, to raise the standard, to bring polite society into mm. the building. And it becomes a hub for its community, having been perhaps just a simple utility of the town. So that's chapter three, and we turn the page to chapter four. The 20th century arrives, and after the Second World War in 1949, the people of Gainsborough work to save the old hall. So what's happened by this point? In the mid-20th century, I think that sense of civic amenity, it's running its course, it's running out of steam. The grandees of Victorian society who turned up to every meeting of the Institute, I think, you know, passed on and, 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 and... popular activity within Gainsborough changes and the old hall itself is suffering. It's in a bad way and there are thoughts about whether in fact it should be dismantled. In the late 19th century, the old hall, the surviving gardens and grounds that were around it have been built over. Suddenly it is enclosed by terraced houses and, and, and other dwellings and it's really looking very uncertain in the mid 20th century what's going to happen. There's a friends group that's set up. So a friends group is set up in 1949 by local people, entirely voluntary, and somehow they have the energy, the sheer will to raise funds and to invest in the restoration, the repair, in places, the complete sort of rebuild, dismantling and putting back together of huge parts of this extraordinary structure. And it's their work and they're given the building, they're giving it a, for a shilling a year as rent by the latest vacant family owner. And it's their work that saves the hall and, and dissuades people from demolishing it, convinces people that this is an asset, this is an extraordinary thing in the middle of what by now is quite an urban sprawl of a town, a manufacturing industrial town, that this building is critical to that town's sort of pride and sense of what it is. So that's the Friends Group really right and through into the 1970s when the local council take on the management and they run it with extraordinary sort of passion and investment right through to 2020 when Lincolnshire County Council decide they'll step back and finally English Heritage, having 
looked after the property, had it in our care for 50 years, mm. we step in and we're left to manage it. So that's where we are now, really. And we're back in the present, so to speak. So English Heritage take full control of the site. History is in front of us. So um, what happens next? One of the things we had to think about, maybe, is that over the 50, 60, 70 years that Kevin's just talked about, there's a kind of accretion of stuff in the hall. You've had this amazingly active friends group. We've had a very sort of positive Lincolnshire County Council. You know, both those groups over 50, 60, 70 years are doing great things with the building. But maybe one side effect of the involvement is that the sort of the building gets more and more stuff in it. You can imagine in that history, you get sort of props and objects and information panels. And I suppose by 2021, by now, an awful lot of stuff was in the building. So we had an opportunity to sort of not exactly strip it all away, but just think about how much stuff we wanted in the building. Think about what sort of signage and information we wanted. Would we want to go for tons and tons of replica objects or fewer replica objects? And led by Kevin, we had this opportunity to sort of plan what we wanted to do. You've described then how you've sort of inherited a really beautiful old hall here in Gainsborough, but it's got an accumulation of stuff which has gathered over the years and you've got to sort through that. But also, presumably, there's some conservation work that might be needed as well, just to sort of make things tidy and presentable for the next generation of visitors. So what conservation of work have you got coming up? Yes, it's got its accumulation of challenges as well, not just clutter. It's a building that it is vast, actually. Gainsborough Hall is not a small place to look after. And the very nature of the fabric, timber framing, plaster panels, the scale of the roof present some real challenges. So, you know, when it snowed in the winter and, and the gutters filled, we had water pouring down the insides of the walls. That's not untypical. But it's a building that really we've had to re-inspect and get to know for ourselves and get to understand what its physical challenges and its physical idiosyncrasies are. Mm-hmm. Are those flight holes in timber, is that live beetle or is that being treated in the past? these floorboards, can we sand these back or are these particular and historic in the way the wear pattern is? It's taking things slowly, it's stepping back, it's looking at all times to understand each of the little processes you're doing. But in doing that, it does allow you, for instance, to say, right, well, we can repaint this space. We're content with our understanding of the scheme we have at the moment, but if we do paint analysis, we find out it used to be this colour 100 years ago. Actually, we are free to repaint this and renew certain spaces in that way. So it's been a learning. We've been learning about the building as we've been having to think about it and understand its history. It's been a fascinating way of approaching a new property, actually. Yes, we've covered on previous podcasts how a lot of research goes into actual conservation because you have to really do meticulous detail and inspection and testing and and that sort of thing. Has there actually been conservation work already taking place on site? So just today we're actually rehanging 15 family portraits. These are portraits that belong to the Bacon Hickman family and they go all the way back to William Hickman and his mother Rose and they've been off site now for the past eight months having treatment works both to the canvas and the oil painting itself, but then also to have them placed in special sort of climatized frames 
that mean we can control the environment that's going on. This building is shocking for historic things. It bounces around in its humidity and its temperature. It's all the things we try to prevent in most of our sort of English heritage displays. And yet, to not have those 15 portraits, the faces of the people who made such an impact on this building, well, we weren't going to let them go. So we've worked hard to enable those to return to the building. So they're being hung as I, as I chat. Brilliant. Are these portraits of people from right across the history of the Hickman family, which of course dates back to the 17th centuries? Yeah, so we have a portrait of Rose Hickman, this extraordinary sort of indomitable authority within the Hickman family. And they come right the way through various generations, not a complete sequence, but the key players all the way up to the Bacon Hickmans in the mid-19th century. And indeed, I'm hoping to get a picture of of a rather curious character, Hickman Beckett Bacon, who, who died aged 90 in the 1940s. But this is a wonderful eccentric chap who perhaps in some ways did more than anyone to make sure this building survives for English heritage to look after it anyway. Well, the hall obviously is being presented to visitors in the form of these new portraits, which are going to be going up, which is a fantastic addition, you know, really historically authentic presentation to new visitors. How else are we going to interpret the hall when we come to visit? There's a sense at Gainsborough, this is something I've, I've sort of talked to colleagues about, and I think Nick picked up on, there's a sense of this whole building and its whole history being a kind of performance. I mentioned the theatre here. Well, that feels almost how we're treating the building, thinking about different characters, a cast of characters performing. We've talked about chapters today. Well, you could call them acts or mm. scenes. You know, they're these little vignettes from the history. And they come out very strongly, particularly when you can give voice to them through a character. And we're not particularly trying to dramatise explicitly, but hopefully what we're doing is giving people this sense of theatre, of performance, of drama, and of actors across a 500-year period. And actors in some ways that are sort of interrelating and interacting with each other. Nick, sorry. Just give an example of that. So, yeah, you've talked about this quite important regional theatre from the late 18th and early 19th century. But then, yes, we've been inspired by that to think about, well in let's say the 1470s or 1480s when you have a big feast taking place in the hall so you've got sir thomas burr you've got his wife margaret and there's a whole host of other family members there you've got important the sort of senior stewards and servants right down to the junior servants so on a feast day in the hall that is a kind of theatrical performance taking place with display and obeying certain social rules. So I think that analogy of the theatre and the performance would work quite well for the late Middle Ages. Will that be presented as mannequins of these particular figures from history that people will encounter as they go from room to room, or has it...? No, it won't. He says in a slightly pompous way. No, those people who know English heritage, it's not particularly our style. I don't really mean that in a snooty way, actually. It's just not perhaps the way that we approach these things. This has had to be a very rapid turnaround. And in many ways, what we're doing is is an overlay to what was already here. And it's putting an English heritage, what we would consider an English heritage stamp of quality into the building. So we've been relatively restrained, actually. And perhaps a lot of what we're doing is being converted more through our use of language and perhaps how that gets that sense of performance and theatre, but also how we're staging each room with just little 
interventions to suggest its function, its use, utility, the kind of person, but not going to the point of dioramas of mannequins. But all of that said, I think something over 40 people have signed up to be volunteers at the Old Hall with English Heritage, which is absolutely fantastic. And those, a lot of those people will be explainers. Those people will bring life to the spaces, whether in costume or, or not, and bring through, carry through some of the personas of the wonderful character set that we have at the Old Hall. That will certainly bring it to life with having those live sort of actors, definitely. Yeah. Can I give another example of performance? I was just sort mm. of thinking of something, thinking about people and stories. Kevin's talked about the assembly rooms in the mid-19th century. And one of the things we talk about in display or the interpretation, you know, our panels for that room is we've got this amazing story of in 1858, the assembly rooms, one particular room in the East Range was used for an anti-slavery meeting. So we have this amazing story of two formerly enslaved American, a man and a woman, Ellen and William Craft, who'd escaped from the American state of Georgia. They'd eventually moved to London and they were kind of touring the country, lecturing to people at rooms like these assembly rooms about the abolitionist movement. Hmm. So in 1858, of course, the abolitionists had kind of won their argument in terms of Britain and the British Empire, because we'd already had the 1830s acts of abolition. But in the 1850s, slavery and the question of abolition is still very much alive in terms of the Americas. And America didn't gain the final abolition until the 1865 and the end of the Civil War. Mm. So you, it's an amazing story to think that you have these two formerly enslaved people who are now a free man and woman living in London and England and touring our country, going round to venues and actually speaking like they did in October 1858 to the people of Gainsborough about their lives. Quite yes. an amazing story. And we've got their portraits as well. Wow, that's amazing. That's that's really local history, but also feeding into national history there, isn't it? That's a really mm. good example of that. Yeah, okay. very much so. Well, we've talked about how the place was used as a theatre in the late 18th and 19th centuries, how that aspect is being reflected in the way that things are going to be presented. But will the theatre aspect be focused upon on its own as well? I think... One of the things we've tried to do in our retelling of Gainsborough is to extend its history and broaden the stories that we're telling. Previously, perhaps Gainsborough had been known for its exceptional kitchen and for the medieval story and for the fact Henry VIII visited. But we're trying to pick out this longer history. And the theatre is one aspect of that, yes. But so is the Literary Institute. So is the Masonic Temple, which I haven't even mentioned. You know, so are the poor people of the tenement blocks and Mrs. Smith, who nearly burns the place down in 1844. So is William Hornby, who sets up a coarse linen factory in 1760. It is absolutely stacked full of stories and intensely relatable stories as well. Stories that you will understand from any local town in many ways and stories that grandparents have sort of passed down in any local town. That's why Gainsborough, that's why the old hall is such a joy to work with and I think will be, I hope will be, such a joy to visit. And if people are planning a visit, which parts stand out to you that are particularly impressive, perhaps architecturally or historically based on what happened in that particular place? Go on, Nick, you can have the architectural. Well, the kitchen is still amazing. I mean, the kitchen is an amazing part of the hall. It's huge. It's a huge 
square cubic brick place. So it's got a brick floor. It's got two enormous brick fireplaces on the south and north sides. On a third wall, it has a set of pastry ovens. So in some ways today, it's a quiet place, but it's, I think it's, it's a good place to imagine life 500 years ago or 520, 30 years ago in the 1480s or 90s. It would be hot, it would be smoky, you've got these open fires going. One of the fireplaces is being used for roasting birds and joints of meat, and another one of the fireplaces is going to be used for boiling stews in big cauldrons. You've got the pastry ovens, so here in Lincolnshire, you know, we're imagining there's going to be savoury pork pies being produced in the ovens as well as sweet pies being produced. We don't know the name of the kind of chief cook, the master of the kitchen, but in Sir Thomas Burr's will, he names two or three of his kind of senior servants. And one of these men is Ellis Deeping. And we're sort of, in our interpretation, in our storytelling within the kitchen, we're imagining that this Ellis Deeping, who is a real man, but we're imagining that he's the master of the kitchen. (laughs) And you can sort of picture him sort of upstairs in the kitchen it's this very tall space all the smoke is kind of sucked upwards to the top of the kitchen but there's a sort of upper gallery and you can imagine the master of the kitchen sort of looking down and shouting at some of the kitchen boys and young men working there telling them to get a move on but he'd be a strict man to you imagine if you had to produce a feast for for the master uh, sir thomas with sort of 50 60 70 people in attendance you'd need a pretty strong cook to sort of keep a handle on things so that kitchen is an extraordinary space it's kind of one of the great surviving very late medieval kitchens in england what about you kevin do you have a favorite part of the building i'm going to take you from the architecturally stunning and significant busy place of food preparation that Nick's just given us. I'm going to take you to the other side of the house and places in 1961. And in 1961, in a dining room on the other corner of the house, Mr. Edmund Dorber sits, aged 86. And he's the last resident of Gainsborough Old Hall. And he's there in his dining room, which was a dining room created by William Hickman, 300 years, over 300 years previously. And he receives his plated dinner, not prepared by a couple of dozen young people, young men in the kitchen of Gainsborough Hall, but by a lady across the road who delivers his plated dinner each day. (laughs) Um, In fact, it's a young boy who delivers it and who's just written to me and just said that he remembered Mr. Dorber as an incredibly courteous man, always sat with his suit and his waistcoat at his dining room table and he would this young boy would step in to this darkened room and place the plate on the table and he'd always be thanked and Mr. Dorb would return the plate at the end of the day. Now for me, that dining room in which I can imagine William Hickman and I can imagine his great-grandson and I can imagine Mr. and Mrs. Baines but I can imagine Mr. Dorber in the last months of his life still this proud Victorian gentleman, the last resident of Gainsborough Hall, just sort of ending his days alone, sadly, in this Mm. enormous, enormous property. But one one he loved and one he cared for, and he was a key member of that friends group I've spoken about. A great man. I'd love to know more about him. Eagle-eyed visitors, of course, might also spot some monastic history in the hall. Could you explain a bit more about that, Nick? Well, in the main hall room, so we're talking the north range of Gainsborough Hall, It's basically a beautiful medieval hall of the 1460s, 1470s. But 
there's this rather unusual stone bay. So it's a multi-sided sort of giant bay window protruding from the north side. It's made of stone. It's got medieval windows in it, but they've clearly been taken from a great church, perhaps a monastery down the road. And they've been reassembled here probably a little bit later. So if, if the timber-framed hall dates to the 1460s or 70s, the windows might date to the round about that time a little bit later, but they've been rebuilt here in a sort of great stone bay window probably a hundred years later in the 1580s. And it makes for a sort of very unusual but a sort of grand bay window that casts light on the east end, the high end of this medieval hall. So it's a fantastic feature, but there's a kind of enigma to it. Where's it come from? Who puts it here? I mean, it's probably from a local monastery, probably one of those ones shut down by Henry VIII in the 1530s. That's what I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> Maybe somewhere like Louth Park Abbey, which isn't that far away in Lincolnshire. It's probably been assembled here by one of the owners. It probably is by Thomas Burr, but it's not the Thomas Burr that we were talking about earlier. We think it was probably installed for... Sir Thomas Burr's, I think it's his great-great-grandson, who by then is the third Baron Burr, and it's probably assembled in the 1580s when that Thomas Burr is made a lord. And so he's, he's one of the last of the Burrs to actually kind of stamp his mark on the hall. And we now know, of course, that within 10 or 20 years, the Burrs had sold the hall and it became, as we heard earlier, this Jacobean house belonging to the Hickmans. But the sort of last great end of the Middle Ages, if you like, seems to happen with this bit of creative monastery recycling that takes place yes. in the hall in the 1580s. And the future of the site will be written soon. We've got obviously a long history <laughs> dating back some 500 years. We've got the Burrs, the Hickmans, various tenants and business owners and potentially theatre goers coming as well and now of course it's in the care of English Heritage so what's the future of the site under English Heritage's full care what plans are there for further research into the history of the building well I think it's an awful lot of scope for further research this has been a curious project to work on not least because of the whole lockdown issue and not being able to access a lot of archives and I think we've barely scratched the potential in terms of research and understanding, whether that's family history, architectural history, or some of this fantastic sort of later yet later use of the building. It's for English Heritage to work with the town, I think. I mean, that's sort of our intention here, is to work very closely with the town and with people who've always had a lot of love and given a lot of their time to this building to see where we take it next. We've kind of got it stabilised, we've got it ready for an English Heritage public there are all sorts of different directions this building could take. I'm not going to second guess them. I just know it's one of the sort of most versatile and sort of extraordinary structures that we have in our portfolio. And I love it. And your impression as well, Nick, are you looking forward to the future of the building under English Heritage's care? Well, very much so. I'm looking forward to seeing local people wandering about and just appreciating its amazing versatile spaces. And we've talked about the hall part itself. You've got the intimacy of some of the smaller rooms in the eastern wing. 
we've got this amazing west range which is a whole series of kind of lodgings to start off with in the medieval period and because of its history it's kind of the timber framing inside has been stripped away so you've got these amazing sort of skeletal rooms with this bare empty timber framing and it's kind of really atmospheric and i'm just sort of looking forward to seeing people walking around and exploring it as kevin has said there's lots more to find out the West Range and the Hall itself have been quite well studied. I think we'd like to find out a bit more about some of the architectural details of the East Range. There's some of the early details. We know there's a 14th century medieval building kind of sitting underneath. We'd love to find out a bit more about that. So once you get to kind of know and love a building like this, there's always new stories to be told, new stuff to be found out. And I think what's amazing about this building is that it's, on the face of it, it's a medieval hall. But once you start going into it, it's just got so many more stories to tell. So a bit more research needed and a couple more versions of the guidebook still to come. Kevin is doing a guidebook for the building and I'm sure we can work over the next five, ten years. We'll uncover some of these new stories. We'll keep peeling back the layers as time slips (laughs) inexorably into the future. Thanks a lot for talking to us, both of you. It's uh, really interesting and uh, we'll keep an eye on how things develop. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll get to know some of the British Olympians honoured with blue plaques at their former homes as the 2021 Games get underway in Japan. He beat the German team in the double skulls event there in front of a watching Adolf Hitler, and he pronounced it to be the sweetest race I ever rode in. Thanks for listening. See you next time.